The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God, and they threw into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck, where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, How can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us so that we will not perish. Then the sailors said to each other, Come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. They cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. So they asked him, Tell us, who is responsible for making all this trouble for us? What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? He answered, I am a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. This terrified them, and they asked, What have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord, because he had already told them so. The sea was getting rougher and rougher, so they asked him, What should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they couldn't, for the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried out to the Lord, Please, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man, for you, Lord, have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered him a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. How about I pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have spoken, first through the prophets, and then by your Son Jesus, who is the radiance of your glory. We thank you that we can read your word in Scripture in a language that is accessible to us. Father, we pray that you would help us to understand this passage rightly. I pray that you would help Mike to speak faithfully and clearly from it. Amen. Today we're looking at the book of Jonah, and I think a lot of us are familiar with the book of Jonah. At least we know that it's about a fish or a big whale or something like that. But I want to say it's probably just one of the strange things in the book of Jonah. And sometimes what happens is that, especially when the story is big, especially when we've looked at it before, sometimes memories of things in the past are actually unhelpful for us because it puts us in our head memories that aren't actually there in the text and sometimes makes us miss the point. I hope as we look at the book of Jonah over the next few weeks, it'll actually take us by surprise yet again. Okay, so let's turn to the book of Jonah. Uh, I'll give you a bit of time again. I remember the first time when I was uh, hearing this being preached at a conference, a guy called Peter Adams said, please look up the book of Jonah, you can find it right next to Obadiah, 
which is a fat lot of use. Um, but, you know, if you've got your devices, just press on the right button. Uh, in fact, it's actually there in your outline. It's just set out in a funny sort of a way. Uh, you'll see it there. We're going to just look at the first 16 verses of the first chapter this week, and we're going to work through it slowly. Okay, let's start. Well, how does it start? The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. And I just want to pause there because the first line of books in the Bible, especially the Old Testament Bibles, are actually really important. Uh, the first line often gives you the title of the book. It's almost like, you know, when you're typing in Word and, and you're typing your essay and you forget to save it and you think, OK, I've got to save it, and how the, the, the Word program picks its, its, its document title is that first line up to the first uh, punctuation mark. And it's almost like the ancient writers of the books of the Bible was using Word, right? Like, and they press the button and there's a saving word. And, and so in Genesis, right, Genesis we call Genesis, but the uh, Hebrew speakers, the ancient Jews, call it Bereshit, which just means in the beginning. And so the first line of the book of Genesis is, in the beginning God spoke. Uh, the book we call Exodus, the Hebrew is called Shemot, which just means names. Why? Because the first line of the book of Exodus says, these are the names of the sons of Israel. Uh, the book we call Leviticus is called Vayikra, which just translates as called. And the first line of Leviticus is, the Lord called to Moses. The book Numbers is called Bemidva, in the desert. Why? Because the first line says, the Lord spoke to Moses in the tent of meeting in the desert. The book Deuteronomy is called Devarim, words. These are the words Moses spoke to all Israel in the desert east of the Jordan. The first line is actually really important. And the first line here is, the Lord spoke, spoke to Jonah, son of Amittai. And it's important because this little book tucked in the back of the Old Testament, this tiny little book that's just a couple of pages, is actually in continuity with all the Bible. Because I guess that phrase, the Lord spoke, could be the title of the whole of the Bible, couldn't it? It certainly could be the title of Genesis, because God spoke those beautiful six words which created the heavens and the earth. It could be the title of the section in Genesis chapter 12, when God spoke to Abraham and gave him the promises, the blessing of land, of, of, of offspring, of all sorts of blessings to the whole world. Or it could be the title of the situation at Mount Sinai when God spoke those ten words and constituted national Israel. God speaks, and throughout the Old Testament, you see God speaking, and you're asking yourself, is it going to happen? Wow, and it does. And the New Testament could be called that as well, couldn't it? Remember how John starts? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and that Word became flesh. He dwelt among us. Over the last few weeks, we've been looking at the book of Acts. And Rowan last week, as he was doing Acts 17, looking at Stephen, it was about the message that couldn't be stopped. It was about God's word going out from Jerusalem to Samaria to the ends of the earth. Jonah, by starting off with saying, God spoke, is in continuity with all that. This is the speaking God and it's no small matter that this story that we think is about a fish actually fits in the whole Bible because it's about God who speaks. It's such an important concept and I do hope that you'll sign up to annual conference because it's only by God speaking that we know him. 
You know, philosophers have been talking for ages and ages and years and years about how we know stuff, and they come up with two ways, actually. One is called rationalism. The other is called empiricism. Rationalism is all about thinking up stuff, right? Descartes, I think, therefore I am. Let's work things out so that everything's logically consistent, everything's logically compatible. One plus one equals two, therefore two minus one equals one. Fantastic. It all fits in beautifully. It's coherent. The problem with rationalism is it doesn't go beyond that equation. Yes, it's great that one plus one equals two, but you can't know outside of it. So the philosophers go, right, empiricism's not enough, so let's go for, sorry, rationalism's not enough, so let's go for empiricism, so we can touch, taste, see, smell. We, we can use our senses to work out what things are like. And so science was developed, and we can see the world that's out there, and we grow in knowledge. But I'm going to ask you, do you know people like that? Right? I want you to imagine my sister, right? Imagine my sister, right? By all your powers of rationalism, what can you know about my sister? Right? So by deduction, because you guys are all university educated and trained, you go, okay, my sister's female. That's what the word sister means. He's related to me, okay? Either by birth or, or, or by, by adoption or something like that. Probably got black hair, probably got brown eyes, probably short. You know, all those Asian sort of things, plus or minus 15 years or something like that. But do you know my sister? And so you go, okay, right. There's a limit to my rationalism, knowing about Michael's sister, so what we're going to do is use our empirical powers. So you bring her in here, and you measure her, and you weigh her, and you put her in a bomb calorimeter, and work out that she's $5.60 worth of chemicals or something like that, right? But you don't know her. You only get to know her if she reveals herself to you, if she speaks, if she talks, if she explains to her what she likes, what she loves, what she likes doing, who she's related to. What sort of things is on her mind? We don't know God by guessing. We don't know God by thinking him up. We don't know God by experimenting. Because it's a beautiful day out there today, therefore God is a good God. We only know God because God speaks to us. How he speaks to us? In what way? Well, that's what we're going to discover at annual conference. Do sign up, won't you? SUEU.org at the ANCOM website registered there. God speaks, and God speaking to Jonah is in continuity with the rest of the Bible, the Old Testament and the New Testament. And God speaks to Jonah. What about this Jonah? Let's speculate here for a little bit. Because, you know, if you had the name Jonah, you'd be pretty upset, I think. Because Jonah just means dove, right? It was Noah who, after the 40 days and 40 nights of rain, sent a Jonah in the sky and see whether it comes back or not. That's all it means. Pretty wimpy sort of a name, right? Like, you, you wouldn't call your rugby league team doves, you know? We, we got the manly sea eagles, even though they're playing like doves at the moment. Um, but, you know, you got the dragons and you, 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 you got the tigers, you, you got the bulldogs, you got the eels, you got the panthers, you got the sharks, you got the dragons. It's all mean animals, right? I mean, we've got the Sydney Swans, that's why AFL's a silly game. But, you, you know, like, it, it's, it says something about the, the character, what, what it is. And that's just speculation, but it's not just speculation. Because if you look in the Bible, every time the word dove is used, it's often gentle. Uh, in fact, the word dove, or the animal dove, is used to, as a metaphor for God's people. So back in Psalm 74, verse 19, it says, Do not hand over the life of your dove to wild beasts. Don't have Israel judged. That's what the psalmist is saying. 
It's this gentle little thing that might be mauled by wild beasts. Hosea actually adds a little bit. And it says, well, he says, Israel is like a dove, silly and without sense, he says in Hosea chapter 7, verse 11. It's positive, it's nice. Doves are cute, little nice animals. They're not mean, they're not nasty. Uh, son of Amittai, son of Amittai, Amittai just means truth. And so here you are, you have, have God speaking to this one who's dove. You've got God speaking to this one who's dove, who is the son of truth. But I guess the original readers would have known something about Jonah, about Dove, son of truth. Because you can actually see him referred to in 2 Kings. In 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 23 and onwards, it says this, In the 15th year of Amaziah, son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, son of Jehoash, king of Israel, became king in Samaria, and he reigned 41 years He did evil in the eyes of the Lord and did not turn away from any of the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, which he had caused Israel to commit. He was the one who restored the boundaries of Israel from Lebo Hamath to the Dead Sea in accordance with the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, spoken through his servant Jonah, son of Amittai, the prophet from Gath-Hefer. The Lord had seen how bitterly everyone in Israel, whether slave or free, was suffering. There was no, um, no one to help them. And since the Lord had not said he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven, he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, son of Jehoash. Remember, this is a time in two kings when national Israel was split into two bits. There was the southern kingdom Judah and the northern kingdom Israel. And Israel was just about to be obliterated. In the 8th century, you had um, uh, prophets like Amos and Hosea who spoke judgment against Israel. It was always warning about judgment. Don't do this. Don't do this. Turn back to the Lord. And yet in the midst of this dire judgment, dire warning that was coming to Israel, there was a a little prophet called Jonah who brought good news, a little bit of restoration that was coming. And do you see what's happening here? Right in the beginning of Jonah, we get, okay, God speaks in continuity with the rest of the Bible. He's speaking to one who's dove, who's gentle, who by our own experience is going to bring us good news. And then what happens? Here's the first surprise, I think. Verse 2, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for the wickedness has come up before me. It's not a happy word. It's not a word of salvation here. This is what you would expect from Dove. This is what you'd expect from Dove, the son of truth, one who's brought good messages to the northern kingdom in the past. And yet what God does is he gets Jonah on a mission of judgment. What can we learn about God just from these first opening lines? Well, the first thing is that God is a God not just of doves, not just of Israelites, not just for people who are his, but God says, no, I am the God of all the earth, including Nineveh. Nineveh was the place of the king who actually ended up wiping out northern Israel. And God says, I am the king even of that place. And I'm the judge of all is the second thing that he says that he considers him not just the judge of the whole earth, but those people are actually accountable to him. 
that God is not just God of Israel, not just of Dove, not just a good speaking nice God or something like that, but God, Yahweh, is the God of the whole universe who calls everyone to a couch. And I guess nice to take pause here for a little minute because I wonder what your picture of God is like. Uh, you're happy here with the evangelical union amongst a bunch of friends and even if you're not a Christian, you're brought into this beautiful little fellowship. And it's sort of nice actually, a little bit of a refuge from everything else that's going on outside. But is that who God is? You know, towards the end of exam, uh, end of semester, when exams are coming up, assignments are, are, are due, that's when you pull him out of your back pocket and you pray to him and, and hope that he'll give you peace from anxiety or something like that. Or is your head clear that God is not just God of the EU, not just God of your own life or your own family, your own church, but God of the rest of the university, God of the rest of Sydney, God of the rest of Australia, God of beyond, that God is the Lord of the whole universe? How big is your God? How big is your God? And I guess when you know God like that and he calls you, on a message to proclaim the great news, a great news of of salvation and judgment, I guess you can be a little bit like Jonah. Jonah, who's told to get up and go to Nineveh, and so exactly what he does is get up and go almost 180 degrees, the opposite direction. Goes to Tarshish. It's crazy, right? It it should shock you because you sort of read in the Bible and you know your Bible well enough and you think there have been people who've listened to God, didn't like it, but they still did it. Remember Moses? He said, look, I haven't got a good voice. I can't do this job. And yet he still did it. All sorts of people like that. Jeremiah, when God called him as a young person, he really didn't think he was up to the task either, but he did. And yet God said, Jonah, get up, go to Nineveh. And Jonah got up and went to Tarshish. We're going to hear the reason why he did that in a couple of weeks' time in the last chapter of Jonah. But verse 3 is not a happy picture. You see it a little bit more literally in the New American Standard Version. Arise, get up, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it. For the evil has come up before me. So Jonah got up, rose up, to flee to Tarshish as far as he could from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa. Instead of going up, goes down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into the pit of the ship to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. God, you are the God of the whole world. God, you're the God who sends judgment. I can't handle that. I'm going to run away. This is Jonah. And maybe that's a picture of you today. You don't mind a comfortable God. You don't mind when you use him for times of trouble and stress. But when you actually know him, what he says is a little bit uncomfortable. And you want to hide away from the presence of the Lord as well. Well, let's get to the story. We're going to look at the story as it's told. And the way that I set it out in your notes is what we call uh, like a chiasm. Uh, chiasm just comes from the Greek word chi, which looks like the uh, English letter X. And it's sort of like the two arms of X, the left-hand side of the arms of the X, comes to a point like an arrow and it goes out again. It has a central point right in the middle there that I put in bold. But what's, what, what the tricky thing about chiasm is, it's sort of like got little reflections, little bits of stories that are the same. 
And so at the beginning of the story, you hear about the, the sailors being afraid. At the end of the story, you hear about the sailors being afraid. Uh, at the beginning of the story, you hear about uh, the sailors crying out. And then at the end of the story, you hear about the, story, uh, the sailors crying out. It's a story that has reflections. It's an easy way to remember a story. Let's work through that slowly. Because the story moves quickly out to sea. And God, once again, instigates things. Verse 4. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. This is the God who initiated the whole story. This is the God who speaks. This is the God who sends Jonah with a message of judgment and he just doesn't speak. Things happen. He's in control of the heavens and the earth, the sky and the seas. God sustains the universe. He's not judge of the earth. Now by his actions, we see all the bits of creation come into being on this judgment on Jonah. And caught up in the middle of it are the sailors on the ship. And verse 5, we read that as the storms whipped up, the sailors are terrified. These seasoned sailors who used to sailing the Mediterranean Sea, who used to knowing what things are like there, they were scared. Have you seen sailors? You've met sailors before. Often big, buffy blokes. who are just tough guys. And these guys were scared. So scared that each of them were crying out to his own God. You know that saying, no atheists in foxholes? It's like that. They're panicking and, and they're crying out to their own God. And what do they do? What do they do? They tried to save the ship in the midst of all this and they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship praying to any God that they can think of, with all their might and effort and all their strength, lightening the ship so that it wouldn't go down. They don't know what's going on. Meanwhile, Jonah goes below deck and he's gone to sleep. Two responses, really, to the reality of God's judgment. People who are panicking, doing whatever they can, scrambling, or you go to sleep. I wonder how many of us are like that, who in the midst of understanding that God is a God who brings salvation, that God is a God who brings judgment, and yet we go below deck and fall asleep. Well, somehow the captain finds that Jonah is asleep. And so in verse 6, the captain says, How can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he'll take notice of us and we will not perish. You can't help but think that maybe the captain of the ship actually knows more about the situation that he's in than Jonah, one of God's people, a Hebrew. That the captain of the ship actually gets it. That this is judgment, this is something supernatural that's going on. You've got to do something about it. Well, meanwhile, back on deck, the sailors are trying other solutions desperately. They do all sorts of things. They end up casting lots, throwing a dice. Come, let us cast lots to find out who's responsible for this calamity. They cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. Jonah is singled out. And you can just sense, once that's done, the barrage of questions that come in verse 8. They question Jonah. Tell us, who's responsible for making this trouble for us? Tell us, what do you do? Tell us, where do you come from? Tell us, what's your country? Tell us, what people are you? They're desperately just trying to find out what is that one thing that's leading to this calamity. Desperate clues are sought. And then for the first time, Jonah speaks. In the whole of the narrative that we've come to so far, verse 9, we hear Jonah speak by his own voice. And he says the truth, the very centre of this story. 
I am a Hebrew and I worship the Lord, Yahweh, the God of heaven who made the sea and the land. And there is that truth that undergirds the whole story so far. Yes, we have a God who speaks, but this God who speaks isn't just any God. This God who speaks created the heavens and the earth. And he didn't just create it and let it go like a watchmaker or something like that. But he continues to sustain it and he marshals the forces of heaven and earth for this great storm. This is the God that we're dealing with. And the sailors were afraid of that. They were scared. It's funny, the paradox is, Jonah, who should have known, he went to sleep. He doesn't really care. And yet the sailors were terrified. What is this that you've done, they say? If this is your God, this is crazy. What is it that you've done? And the sea's getting rougher and rougher. And in verse 11, in desperation, they again sought a solution. What should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? And Jonah says, pick me up and throw me into the sea and I'll become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Notice here, there's no prayer like the captain asks for. There's no repentance. It's just a statement of fact. Still wants to run away from God. Still wants to hide. This is the solution. The sailors, to their credit, still continue to try to save the ship, but not by chucking Jonah overboard. So instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. It's crazy, isn't it? It, it, In the face of God's judgment, all this human effort is just silly. It's sort of like uh, my place, which can sometimes get flooded when it rains really heavily. And if the basement gets flooded, if I go down to the basement and I bring a teaspoon with me and I think, yay, here I am, I can empty out the basement. It's sort of like that. In the face of God's judgment, we tend to do all sorts of silly things, actually, to go, this is the way that we're going to get out of it. This is the solution. You know, God is going to judge the world. So here's the solution. Let's have a better education system. Yay! It doesn't work like that. Once again, though, they're forced to cry out when they see their futility. Then they cry out to the Lord, O Lord, please do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man for you, O Lord, have done as you pleased. And in verse 15, they threw Jonah into the sea and the raging of the sea stopped. It's incredible, actually, because once again, the sailors are afraid, like the beginning of the story. But have a look at the little bit of difference that the author introduces. At the beginning of the story, the sailors saw the mighty storm that we were in, and they were afraid. Now, at this end of the story, they saw what God did in quietening the storm after Jonah has been chucked into the sea, and they were greatly afraid. Verse 16, at this the men greatly feared the Lord and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. Now that's not the end of the story of Jonah. There's still a couple of weeks to go and three more chapters that we're going to look at. But I wonder if we can just pause and reflect a little bit. In some ways narratives are difficult 
narratives aren't like textbooks where they're big ideas, big point, section one, section two, and these are the things that you do. Stories, though, are really powerful and amazing because stories allow us to imagine the possibilities for ourselves and identify with the characters that are in the story. And here in the story, we learn that the word of the Lord is coming, that he is the judge of all the earth, including cities like Nineveh, and he calls everyone to account. And we conclude at this point that God has been acknowledged by a most unlikely bunch of people, a group of sailors who never knew him. And yet the one who knew him and yet disobeyed his word has fallen under his judgment. What's the importance of that to us? Well, as the story is continuous, the little story of Jonah is continuous with the whole of the Bible. It's still continuous with us today. What Tim prayed earlier on, that in the past God spoke to our forefathers in many and various ways. The second half of that verse is that in these last days God has spoken to us finally, fully, clearly by his son. God is the one who still speaks. And I guess the thing that we need to think through is what are we doing about it? What is our reaction? Are we people who are like Jonah, who go below deck and just try to avoid all the fuss, run away, hide? Or are we people who have actually known God and seen, he heard his word and saw, his, saw the reaction of what he can do and actually turn to him in worship, in praise, in sacrifice. God is the God who's God of the whole earth, even proud Sydney, even Australia, who's so lucky, of all the earth that we think that we're shielded from. God speaks, it matters. We've already seen that there was a prophet who tried to escape from the word of God. There's a prophet who fell asleep at the signs of God's judgment when that surrounded him. And there were sailors, men who didn't know anything about God really, but yet nevertheless they recognised his reality and at the end of the day cried out to him in mercy. And what happened to them? Well, they were saved from judgment and they worshipped him. It's a funny little story, more than just about a fish. And hopefully you, as you work through the story with me over the next few weeks, you just see the surprising twists and turns. But I'm going to ask you once again to reflect on this story and imagine the possibilities for yourself, identify with the characters. What's the closest picture of you? Are you a Jonah? running away from God who speaks his word, his word of judgment even, trying to escape, going below deck, hiding from him? Or are you like the sailors who actually recognise the reality of God, who cry to him for mercy, who worship him? Which is the closest picture of you because it's one or the other? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you speak and that you're a God who created the whole heavens and the earth and you continue to keep it going. Father, we thank you that as Christians we know that you speak a word of salvation but yet you also speak a word of judgment. Father, as Christians, help us not to hide. Help us to boldly proclaim it as we should. And Father, for those of us who don't know you, Father, help us to understand what that word of judgment is like. 
Help us not try to come to our own salvation by our feeble efforts. Help us to turn to you, beg for mercy. And Father, we pray that you will save us and sustain us. In Jesus' name, amen.